how did that impact your relationship with your mom? You know, it's, uh, it's pretty interesting. Um, she's still alive. She lives very close to me. I talk to her often. Um, I love her dearly. She loves me. We're not close though. So welcome. What's up, Jay? How you doing, Yavita? Glad to be here. I'm good. I'm good. All right. Got Jay Miller with me. People who don't know who you are. What's the 10,000 foot view? Who's Jay? What's the story? Uh, Jay's just a, I I think I'm just a common man. Uh, Born and raised in Colorado. Been here uh, over 50 years. Um, Grew up in a home uh, filled with domestic violence and alcoholism. And uh, my parents divorced when I was age 10. So what that, you know, I'm just kind of getting into my why right out of the gate here, Yavitsa, to why we're having this conversation and why we spoke. But um, what that did is it, it, it fueled me every day in every way. I wanted to create a, a life that was the exact opposite of that in which I grew up. And to my friends and my family, I appeared very driven and, and uh, ready to go. But, uh, you know, behind the scenes, I was like, I, I don't know what the heck I'm doing. I didn't have a father speaking into my life. And you know, that kind of slowed me down and it, it, um, you know, kind of created this dichotomy of my wife thought I was, you know, had it all figured out and, and my friends, and they thought I was just, just on the path, but behind the scenes, I was, uh, I'd get passive at critical times. And so I wasn't really confident Mm. or peaceful behind the scenes. So, um, you know, what that, uh, what, what that meant was, well, one day I was watching, uh, just college football. This is all before (laughs) YouTube. I just got lucky. I, if I didn't see this, uh, the, this quote changed my life. I saw Lou Holtz, who was then head football coach at the University of Notre Dame, say something. He said, there's only three things that will change you from where you're at today to where you're going to be five years from now. And that's the people you meet, the books you read, and the dreams you dream. And I internalized that to mean, okay, I can kind of fill this, this gap, this void left by, uh, you know, uh, dad deprivation. And, um, you know, create, create mentors, create, you know, read books that have stood the test of time and offer best practices about life. And I could create this, this canvas of, of advice. And, uh, so I've been intentionally doing that since my early twenties. Hmm. Interesting. Elaborate a little bit more on what you said. You didn't feel confident or at peace. Like, what do you mean by that? Well, even I mean, though, even though you came off that way to your wife, like what was, what was the disconnect there? Why the person who should probably know you the best? Why was there that? I disconnect? look at it. I look at it as a pie chart. You know, ninety percent of me, I, I'm I'm happy, Jay. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm I'm confident. I'm driven. I wanna I wanna pour into my family. I wanna pour into my work. I wanna be a good worker. Wanna be good in the community. But that ten percent behind the scenes, you know, like I, I mean, I. <laughs> I, I, I tell a couple of stories, one about, you know, like my marriage proposal. I think it was the worst marriage proposal ever. Uh, my wife and I joke about it now, but, you know, at the time she, I knew she was the girl for me. I mm-hmm. loved her dearly. I still love her dearly 25 years later today. But during that moment when it was time to pop the question, I had these doubts and I was like, can I be a good man for you? Can I be a good husband, mm-hmm. father, provider? You know, she thought I was the guy. She was in some ways more wise than I was. But uh, I, I paused at that moment and it, it wounded my wife a little bit because she's thinking, OK, it's me. Something's wrong. You know what? You know, what is it? And it wasn't her at all. It was me thinking, you know, that was that hiccup, that 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 blip, that moment in time when I said, am I going to do am I going to do this well or am I going to fail at it? 
Mm-hmm. Right. I don't, I don't know what a good relationship looks like. I don't know how to run a family. <laughs> I don't know. I know I want to, but I don't know how to. So I'd, I'd hiccup it and, and become passive at, at critical times. Little did you know that no man in the history of mankind has ever known how to do any of that. They just winged it. Bingo. And I, and that was actually one of the breakthroughs I made later was, yeah, I just, I, I, I really mellowed out and I'm like, nobody knows this stuff. Right. Yeah. I've, I've thought about that. Like when my wife and I got married, pretty much nothing changed besides we started living together, you know, like the, <laughs> that aspect of it, but our relationship didn't inherently, I, I guess our perception of each other changed to some degree, but we were still the same people. And, um, it is something we joke about, like where you get married and then you're like, cool. Like now what? Just keep living. Yep. Keep living <laughs> and, and figure it out as you go. Well, I just think, yeah, I, I think you, 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 you begin to meld into, uh, as much business partners as, uh, romantic interest, mm-hmm. you know, as you, I mean, cause life is, life is a lot of operations. You, you, gotta, you gotta just get going right. And, and do your jobs and maintain your, maintain your life. Yeah. So, so let's, let's step a little bit back into your, into your childhood. You said, so domestic violence, alcoholism. I mean, talk a little bit about that background. Like what was going on? You know, I was, uh, I was the youngest of three children. Actually, I have a, a younger sister from, uh, when my mom got remarried after the divorce, but growing up formatively, I was the, I was the uh, youngest of three. My, my oldest brother took the the brunt of it. I was actually never physically abused hmm. myself, but my mom was, I mean, she was, thrown out of a moving car by my father. Um, he, um, he, he would come after, after her. Um, you know, I knew it was in, I I could hear arguing in the house. And as a child, that's, that's, so this is all happening when I'm, you know, zero to eight years old. Right. I kind of know something's going on, but I'm, I'm avoiding it. I just vividly remember my father's last night in the house and, I was dreading the day a couple of days before one of my siblings told me that, uh, Hey, mom and dad are going to get divorced. And that kind of crushed me. So mm-hmm. I just kind of, I kind of went off to the side and, and, uh, didn't engage cause I was afraid of kind of putting my head down like, Hey, there's a storm coming. Uh, something's going to happen. And then that night I was in the basement. We had a little tiny ranch home and I was in the basement and I heard yelling, which was becoming more common. And I, and I heard a big thud and, and yelling and kind of walk up the stairs and I can kind of, you know, I'm like halfway up the stairs, but I can see through the railing and right at eye level, my, my 14 year old brother, uh, or I think he was 13. He, he had pinned my father down. He had learned some new wrestling moves and, in uh, gym class and had him in a full Nelson, just, just pinning his head down to the ground. And I can see my, my father being all angry. My mom had locked herself in the bathroom and and he said, my, my dad said something like, I don't exactly remember, like when I get up, when I get out of this, I'm going to beat the shit out of you. Or I, he, he could have even said, I'm going to kill you. Mm. And, um, and then, you know, the, the neighbors called the police and, and the cops came and it was the seventies. We had, we had mirrors everywhere and all the, the yeah. cop lights in the, uh, in the driveway. It was like a disco in our house, just all these lights flashing around and people making sure we're okay. And then we kind of went and uh, stayed at a friend's house to, to, to make sure we we're all safe that night. And, um, and here's the odd thing. We didn't really talk about it much after that, <laughs> you know, so, people are like, what, what happened? And I'm like, yeah, we, we just didn't engage. We just, we just, and that's one of the symptoms of, uh, alcoholic families is you try to put on this front, like everything's okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's so interesting. You don't really want to open the door. 
I mean, do you have, I don't know, is your dad still alive? Do you know anything about him? Do you have any relationship with him at all? Uh, Actually, I'm really at peace with it now. Pardon me. He, uh, he passed 25, 24 years ago. Hmm. Um, He was 55 and, uh, and at the end of his life, he was cleaning up. We had, uh, he lived, uh, he lived out of state and uh, we we would talk on the phone. I was about to have my first child. And Mm -hmm. uh, so I couldn't travel. He was, he was sick. He had cancer. I mean, he smoked and drank and, you know, I think uh, cancer is the official uh, reason for his uh, death, but he, he wrote himself hard and put himself up wet. Um, And we talked at the end, but you know, he was, he was, he was ill. He was just getting by, you know, Mm. Um, for many years I was angry. Now I'm just sad, you know, cause we had all like a, a nice relationship with our, with our father. Yeah. That's so interesting. Just the, the, the trauma that can cause to, to somebody. And I often think when I hear stories like yours, I can't even imagine hitting my wife. Like I literally can't imagine it. Um, and I know a lot of guys feel the same exact way and I don't have kids yet, but you know, like beating a child or shoot, I can't, dude, I get, I feel guilty when I have to hit my dog because he does something that could cost him his life. (laughs) Like something genuinely dangerous. I have to hit this dog. It doesn't happen often, but it's like, dude, if you do that, somebody can put you down. (laughs) Like I have to teach you somehow that you can't. And I feel terrible after that. And it's like a, like my dog's an American bulldog. I, I doubt he can even feel it, but I feel guilty. Um, so to be able to get to the point where you can regularly abuse somebody who you can communicate with, I just, it just makes me wonder like what, what has to happen in that person's head? What, what switch has to flip in order for that to become the norm? Yeah, I, I, I don't know. Yeah, but so I think there's, there's controlling elements. There's, there's, there's shame. There's, I, I don't know. I, I don't believe my father learned that from his father. I, I, I often replay, and this is one of the things that got me out of the anger was, you know, when my dad is 10 years old, 18 years old, even he's not planning to be an alcoholic. That's mm. abusive, right? Yeah. You don't, you don't start on that plan. You, um, you just end up there. And that's, that goes back to kind of the intentionality of, you know, being around good people and ingesting good information and, you know, dreaming the right things you've got to be intentional about because just by just, he he just walked down that path day by day and he's not the first man in the history of the world to be caught by a substance abuse problem. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's rampant. So I, I just, uh, like I said, he was ill and that, I guess that's my best answer is I think he, well, that's what flipped in his brain is he started, uh, start down the drinking path and then you're just not yourself. I mean, yeah. that's the only thing I can think of. Do you, you have two brothers? Is that what you said? I have a bro- older brother and an older sister and a younger sister. Okay. So you have a, you <laughs> have a, since we're specifically talking about men right here between you and your older brother, do you, did you ever see any of not the same behaviors, but the seed of the potential of the same behavior? You know, uh, uh, my brother and I were, were like, like you mentioned about yourself, you can't even imagine it. And we're, we kind of, we kind of moved the needle even further left. Like we're never going to let that happen. Right. Mm-hmm. We're not even going to let that, that thought come, come close to happening. Right. We're going to treat, uh, treat our spouses, you know, uh, you know, really, really well, and, uh, not only physically, but also emotionally. Cause I think, I think the emotional abuse is worse 
than the, uh, the physical abuse in a lot of cases. Yeah. More long lasting. Yeah. It doesn't go away. I don't think. Yeah. Uh, a bruise can heal over, but the pain that somebody can cause you yeah, that you repeat yeah. over and over again emotionally is, is yeah. haunting. I mean, the one, and I, I, uh, you know, as, as I was walking through some things and I had some trigger mechanisms, I mean, what I learned by it all was, um, you know, I was in like my thirties, I would think, um, you know, I, I think dad, why didn't you show up? This was when I was in my anger phase, right? Mm. Like if I, if I, you know, you sign like a, uh, a, a mortgage or you do something that, you know, like, Hey man, where, where was my, where's my wingman father that could have, mm-hmm. uh, you know, helped me not dive into that trap. You know, you do something that's kind of, you, you feel foolish about. And again, like you mentioned, yeah, it's a, all men do it. We're not perfect. We're all going to make mistakes, but I would beat myself up really hard if I made a mistake. And then I would blame my dad. Mm, and I because think, you didn't have that you, guy. Yeah. I think, why weren't you around, man? You know, how about helping a brother out? Yeah, it's a it's an interesting concept in the stories that we can tell ourselves and and the frustrations that we can feel and you know even if you do have a great dad and you grow up in a very healthy quote healthy household um, you might still resent have some resentment or anger because it wasn't done exactly the way you would do it now so there I mean there's there's all kinds of rabbit holes we could go down there what about your mom like how did that impact your relationship with your mom. You know, it's, uh, it's pretty interesting. Um, she's still alive. She lives very close to me. I talk to her often. Um, I love her dearly. She loves me. We're not close though. Hmm. We're not, we're not close. I think, um, I, I, I don't know the exact reasons. I, I kind of unpack it a little bit. You know, I think of her at that moment in time, again, this is in the late seventies, you know, no fault divorce to just come around. So that was something that, that saved her. She was super strong. I mean, to, to file for divorce, you know, back then she didn't have a job, you know, credit was a new thing. She didn't have like bank accounts and money and like, you know, how are we going to survive just all those things that we might not think about today. She was very, very strong to say, look, I just need to get out of this toxic environment and I'm just going to have to figure it out. I'm going to have to get some work. I'm going to have to figure out how to run money and, you know, pay the mortgage and all that. Um, so I think she was very strong and then, then she got married again and, and, um, I think she's filled with a lot of shame. Like she wishes things had been better. Uh, she's always struggled financially. I think she's, uh, she's filed for bankruptcy at least two times. Mm. Um, never really figured that one out. Um, she gave me the ultimate compliment one day. She said, Jay, you've got the life that I always dreamed of. Wow. And that breaks, that breaks my heart. You know, I, I love my wife and kids and we have a good relationship, but I think, I think she's drenched in shame a lot and, um, and feels bad about it. I, I try to work through that with her the best I can. I'm not the perfect son either, but, um, she, she just kind of wants, you know, doesn't want to engage as much. That's so interesting. Isn't life crazy? It is. And it's all between the years. I mean, like you said, the stories we can tell ourselves. I mean, I just slapped my forehead thinking about like, I mean, just like my opening thing that I thought I was the only guy that didn't have this figured out. Right. Mm. And, um, once you start to let yourself off the mat with some of these things and life becomes easier and you can kind of just at least lighten up emotionally and, um, and try to get some momentum versus stopping thinking, you know, it's kind of that, fixed mindset versus that growth mindset. 
you know, if you've read any of uh, like Carol Dweck's, uh, what was her book called? Um, she wrote about, you know, if you always think you're learning, then then you're pretty comfortable. You're like, oh, I made a mistake. It's kind of the Thomas Edison thing, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> figured out another way not to do it. Yep. So I'll just, I'll just, I'll just keep going. I'll figure out a way that does do it. Yeah. Yeah. It's so, uh, yeah. I don't know. I'm thinking about your mom now. I'm thinking about your dad too. You know, we get one shot at this thing that we call life. And if you're lucky, you get 80 years. And there's so many different ways that this life can take us. And it's, it's, I don't know. It's just crazy because, you know, we could compare our life to somebody who's got it on easy street with a silver spoon in their mouth and they have everything handed to them their entire life. We can compare it to somebody who, who was a surf 500 years ago and who was killed at 27 with their village burned down and their wives and sister, like their wife and sister and mother raped, you know, like in an invasion. I mean, and all of those people had their shot (laughs) like in life. And that's the crazy part. Once you really start sitting there and you're like, well, life really isn't fair. It's more so like, what's the story you're going to tell yourself about your life. And I think for so many people, it's so hard to reconcile whatever story they're trying to tell themselves. I think that's honestly the first step. I think you hit on it. Um, just being able to look in the mirror, you know, just me saying what I, what I said at the beginning, you know, I grew up in a home of domestic violence and alcoholism. Mm. I was, I was around 50 when I said that, but I, I don't say it out of want of any response. It's, I'm just saying that that's my story. That's who I am. And that's, yeah. That, that's what made me who I am today. And I'm, I love the fuel and drive I have to try to help, you know, share the story, let, let men know that they're not alone. Men, men tend to isolate. That's why I like to, yep. that's why I tell the story, uh, is to let people know that you're not alone. I mean, that was one of my big breakthroughs. I went to this like men's retreat, this wonderful, uh, teacher, uh, that I, that I walked into, I was in a corporate job and we had this like little leadership group set up and this guy named Van Caesar in Southern California, who, who's, who's, who's taught and mentored men uh, very successfully. I think he's over 80 now. I haven't talked to him in years, but, uh, he had a retreat and, uh, Friday night to Sunday and we all go around the room on Friday night telling our story. And, and that was an epiphanal moment for me as about, uh, 10, 11 years ago, he said, who's had a, uh, an experience with, uh, alcohol negatively impacting your family. And like out of the 18 guys, you know, 80% of them are like me, you know, is my dad, is my mom, is my uncles, my grandparent, whatever. Right. And that, that just kind of lifted the veil for me. And I said, (laughs) I'm a knucklehead. I thought I was alone Mm -hmm. in this. Right. I mean, because Mm -hmm. if you think in the seventies, things like this were taboo, right? Yeah. You didn't talk about it. Depression and alcoholism, Mm -hmm. all that stuff was taboo. If you were that person in the community, you just, you kind of, you were a cook. Now, now we're much more constructive about dealing with it. So I was kind of like hiding it and, and ashamed of it. But now, now it's, it's something that I just acknowledge and it's, it's part of who I am. So let me, let me ask you this. So how many kids do you have? Three, three boys, 24, 22 and 20. All right. 25 years ago, you're about to have your first son. You're sitting there thinking to yourself, holy crap, I have no idea what I'm, what I'm doing because there's a kid on the way. Um, yep like every other man ever. Yep. How do you make sure you don't suck as a dad? <laughs> uh, you know, uh, it, it kind of goes back to, uh, I, I wanted to uh, seek out people and, and best practices and good things. Right. So mm-hmm. 
you know, we, we did what we did back then. Um, uh, one book we read, you know, I think it's still out there. I think it's been through numerous editions and there's probably a lot of other options. What to expect when you're expecting kind of goes through, mm-hmm. you know, Hey, how to get ready for this whole thing. And the other one we got by, we, we got, um, bestowed on us very fortunately because the pediatric, the pediatric office we were going to go to after the child was born. Uh, one of the, one of the doctors was a co-author of a book called baby wise and baby wise is, is, is some people like it. Some people don't, I've gifted it quite a bit. It just kind of helps you train your child to, uh, to be safe and con- or to feel safe and content and to know that, uh, you know, there's going to be a meal coming and, and, um, get them in a routine, get them in a schedule. Mm-hmm. And that was the, the, that was why we, we read the book. Cause like a dozen friends had said, Hey, read this. You can get your kid to sleep through the night in six weeks. But mm. there was one other element of it. Yeah. You might need that someday. Yavitsa. <laughs> okay. Noted. <laughs> Cause it, it did work. It worked for all three of our boys. We got them sleeping through the night very quickly, but there was one other thing and it was, um, it was said, you know, you and your wife are at the center of your relationship. It's not you and the kid, hmm. right? Don't, don't make the child the center of the, of the relationship. Because if you and your wife are okay, the kids are going to know that and they're going to flourish. Yeah. It's going to be a safe environment. And, and so you see things like that. Um, and I come from a, uh, I'll just call it a faith-based background, um, you know, and, and, and kind of knowing that, that, that there's a bigger plan for my life. I believe that I believe that, uh, it's created for, for something. Uh, there's, there's, there's a mission I have here, but knowing that, you know, okay, that, that was my first clue of, okay, I got to be right with my wife and not just like dote over the child all the time. I will dote over them. But if, if, if my wife and I are right, everything else is going to fall into place. Yeah. And so I, I was learning those things as I was going. Um, and that was probably one of the more foundational elements that, uh, that I figured out along the way. Yeah. That's so interesting. It's just that safe environment. I mean, cause I mean, I can think personally just friends that I've had over the years and, and the way I've seen them interact with their family, their parents, et cetera, growing up, you know, there are plenty of people who had quote, seemingly normal families, but you could tell it wasn't a safe environment in the sense of like speaking your mind as a kid, um, or asking questions or, which is something I was very blessed to have. Like I, I was always the the little jerk who just was a contrarian. Not because I wanted to be a contrarian, but like if something didn't make sense, I was like, "That's bull crap." Like you're gonna have to you're gonna have to do a better job of explaining that to me than the way you just did that. Like I, I'm not going to take that's just how it is as an answer. And I got that from my parents. Like they instilled that in me. So. Because that's kind of how it was in, in the household in a lot of ways, and especially conversations with my father. Like, he always taught me, like, don't just take face value. Don't believe everything you're told. It might be the truth, but ask a couple of follow-up questions to figure it out. So, you know, to me, it was always, and it, it took a long time for me to get older to realize that that came out of a place of feeling safe to even ask those questions, even when technically like school, for example, it wasn't actually a safe environment to ask those questions because they didn't want those questions asked. But I just kind of transitioned it from the home into other, other areas. Uh, That's a wonderful story. And it just means that you did grow up in an environment where you had the, the ability to, (laughs) yeah, that freedom just to, just to explore. I mean, that's why I kind of think about raising kids. It's just letting them explore, you know, let them go figure out they're going to, 
they're going to get a bunch of bruises along the way, just, just, you know, learning about life. And, um, it's great that your, your parents let you do that. I mean, you know, they say the success of a man, you, you don't, don't, don't judge him by looking in his eyes, <laughs> look in his family's eyes. If you see mm. joy and, and happiness and curiosity and in, in their, in their spouse and in their kids, that's, that's a successful man. And, uh, that's what your father was to you and your mother. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's also interesting. I've talked to my wife a lot about this. So I, I don't know how much you know about this, but I came to the States when I was 10 and, uh, yeah, I listened to your story. It's an amazing story. I love it. And, and it, it, the older I get, the more I realize it's an interesting story. Uh, it wasn't interesting for a long time, so I didn't share it, but I vividly remember when we came to America. So I came to America when I was 10. I lived in Germany for seven years before that. And then obviously the three years in Bosnia or Yugoslavia or what it was at the time, I don't really recall, recall. but in Germany, I pretty much had unlimited freedom and unlimited responsibility. Not just me, all the kids. Like mom at seven would say, hey, get on your bike, go to the store, buy X, Y, and Z. Here's a couple marks, come back. And I vividly remember, even as a 10-year-old when we came to America, pretty much every single freedom I had was taken away. Really? Every single one. How so? Nobody had those freedoms. What what years uh, was that? Like um, 2000. 2000? Yeah. Nobody had those freedoms. How many, uh, let's be real. Yeah. In in Memphis, Tennessee, how many seven-year-olds are sent to Kroger by themselves to to go buy a a couple items for their mom? Seriously. How many, how many, let's take it a step further. How many people do you even see walking on the street? No, I agree with you. I agree with you. I think it's, uh, I think it, I think that is part of, you know, the man problem as well. Just, uh, just the isolation because you don't have those, those relationships just naturally playing and growing up. Yeah. You and know, it, it kind of teaches it at an earlier age, uh, than, than it used to be. Yeah. There were, there were two instances that I think back even in the last couple of years. So at one point my wife was in Germany in Munich and she was on the U-Bahn, which is the subway in Munich. And there was a kindergarten class going on a field trip on the U-Bahn. And my wife at the time was a kindergarten teacher. And she was like, there's no way on God's green earth I could get my kindergartners to do this. And I was like, yeah, the reason is because they have zero expectation of responsibility. Yeah. That's why. And then a year later, I was in Serbia in Belgrade. And I'm on Knez Mihailova Street, which is like in the city center. Like, just think like a regular, busy European city center. Okay. Yeah. I'm sitting at this little cafe and it's a cobblestone street. And I kid you not, there's like, again, I'm assuming it's some sort of field trip. And these kids are maybe first graders, maybe. Um, and I'm not joking. The single file line they were in was maybe a quarter mile, quarter mile long. And there's teachers like every 30 kids or so. And these kids yeah. are in line in, in a city of two and a half million people in the city center walking. Nobody's batting an eye. And these kids are behaved. Yeah. Do you know how cool it is to be a kid and get to do that? But you get the cool because you have to behave. Yeah. It, it's, it teaches responsibility at an early age. So I think a lot of the issues that we have in America is we've got this suburban hellhole we've built out here where, you know, you lived up, you live in a planned community where it drains every fabric of your soul and, and kills any and all creativity in your life to where you can't explore. 
as you might imagine, yeah. I'm not a fan of the plant suburban community. Um, <laughs> so, and then there are cooler places. Like I think Colorado is pretty cool. Like from what I, from the time I've spent in Colorado, like, Hey, people are actually outside cause it's not miserably hot all the time, but I still driving through Denver. I'm like, Oh, still kind of a suburban hellhole. It is. I, I think you're right. And, and I think as you know, you, you asked how you, how you can be a good father. I think trying to create an environment where they can thrive. I mean, one of the things I said with my children was, you know, I don't care what you do, but you're going to do something. Meaning mm-hmm. like, you're not just going to, you know, pass the time you're going to get into something and I'm not yeah. going to pick your passion. You're going to pick your passion. If it's music, if it's theater, if it's debate, if it's sports or whatever. And, and, and my three boys, despite my genetic input seem to have a little bit of talent <laughs> in sports. Yeah, uh, they they joke. I topped out at uh, junior varsity. I I liked being around. Uh, I play basketball. I'm I'm five eleven, slow, can't shoot or jump. Um, wow! But I liked it. I liked being around my friends. And in retrospect, that's why I liked it so much. I was yeah, around yeah. my friends, and I was around a male figure who was investing in in young men. So. Um, but I, I said to my boys, you're going to, you're going to find something. So they were able to do that community stuff through sport mm-hmm. and sport is, can be a, an evil thing too. I mean, there's, there's yeah. cults out there that are less rigorous than soccer. Yeah. Uh, my kids didn't play soccer. <laughs> they played hockey and baseball, but, um, there's they were able to be a, <laughs> that's <laughs> they, a funny way of explaining they, it cause it's so true. It's, I don't know how soccer kids live. They it's year round. It is nonstop. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, they, they were able to, you know, walk around. They, they were gangly. None of their clothes matched. They were bruised. They were missing teeth. But they were the most confident cats out there because mm. they were around a group and they were all playing and having fun and doing that stuff, right? Yeah. And that gave them the responsibility. And we, we kind of set some family priorities, you know, faith, family. And for me, it was work. For them, it was school. Um, and if they didn't have their, and then it was sports after that or whatever they enjoyed, if they didn't have their work done, you know, that was how we walked through the responsibility thing. We just very publicly stated as a family, this is who we are. If you don't have your school done, you're not going to get to go to practice or, you know, play the game or whatever. Mm-hmm. That's, I was, I had the easiest dad job in the world cause they, they had a passion for something <laughs> called sport and they, they just got in line and they, they got their stuff done. Well, I think, so you touched on something really important there. You didn't pick their passions for them. And I think a lot of people can fall. And again, I'm speaking as someone who is not a parent. Okay. So full disclaimer, but I think a lot of things that I've observed is a lot of parents have control issues Mm -hmm. in the sense that they want to, they want their kids to be something, uh, whether it stems from some sort of insecurity of what they weren't or what they didn't have or what they wanted to be, whatever it may be, or what they think their kids should be. And they push their kids in certain directions and then it creates this apprehension and this wall that's being built. Um, and quite frankly, a lot of resentment and hatred. Yeah. I, I, uh, I know, I know of other families who are in sport. Some of them have reached the NFL or major league baseball, literally. Wow. And so I had a father that, that didn't show up in my life these guys and I'm, I, I'm very tender toward them. They had the opposite. They had a father that, that showed was up that too controlling, much. showed up and, and they're never going to meet. I mean, there, there, there's one guy made it to the NFL, played his first NFL game, 
his dad didn't go. His dad didn't go because he had just moved up from the practice squad. And his dad said, you know, I'm going to wait till you become like a, a full-time Are you kidding NFL. me? And I'm like, he's never going to. And, and, and his, his, his dad mom are still married. They're loving, but you've got these, these parents where you're never going to satisfy them. And, mm-hmm. and if you can never live up to your father's standards, that's kind of the opposite of that, of what I experienced. Cause I had no standards, Yeah. but if you have those, these unreachable standards, I think it's, it's an even bigger screw that's tight, that tightens down on you. The, mm. the, I think that causes more pain. You know, I had a wanting, these guys have a wanting to disappear. <laughs> so interesting. Something my dad always taught me was, I mean, literally the philosophy of our, my upbringing was everything in moderation, everything mm-hmm. always in moderation. Yeah. Self-control is the key to life. He, I mean, I very vividly remember I was probably 18 or 19 and he said, you know, I've accomplished what I wanted to accomplish with you. And I was like, what, what do you mean by that? And he said, my goal my entire life was a teacher to use your head and to use logic. Never let anybody emotionally manipulate you. And I think I've accomplished that. And he says, I, once I get that, accomplished with your sister, I can die a happy man. And I was like, interesting, really interesting. Um, because a lot of his life was, you know, what people being manipulated emotionally and not using their heads. I mean, what's civil war? Civil war is the dumbest kind of war. There's literally no logical reason you can explain to somebody like, Hey, go kill your neighbor. That sounds like a good idea, right? It's literally the dumbest type of war, but emotionally you can manipulate people, religious cults, whatever, uh, soccer teams, <laughs> like, <laughs> so I always really appreciated that <clears throat> mantra. Um, and I haven't been perfect in executing it. Um, I've worked a lot over the years to control myself and control my own impulses as a, uh, as yeah. an Orthodox, we would say, uh, taming our passions, but I'm, I feel like I'm getting better and better at, at it every day, but I just appreciate the philosophy more and more, especially studying the Stoics recently. I'm like, Oh crap. He was just like speaking Stoic philosophy to me. I don't even know if he knew it. Yeah. I, well, I, you and I talked a little bit about <clears throat> Stoicism when we, uh, when we talked a week or so ago and yeah, I, I, the self-control aspect and figuring out what you can control and dealing with that versus what you can't control. Very, very important. And I love how your dad made, you know, and, and many people say this, they made their, his, his, his mess, you know, the, the, the civil war and, and surviving with your family and getting you to Germany and then bringing you over. Man, that's just made him a, the man who he is. Right. And, um, we all get, we're all like four, you know, blocks of granite, right. <laughs> and we all get chiseled and carved in different ways. And that's, that's why we're beautiful is because we, mm-hmm. we become our own person based on our own experiences. And your dad became a beautiful person based on his experiences. You are as well. And I think everybody based on what they have. And that's my hope is that people believe that because we're all going to have something that's going to cause us angst and pain. But if we turn that into our power, and I think we all can, then um, then we'll be better for it. Yeah, it's all about um, like life is suffering in so many different ways and taking that suffering and and molding it into something that is a positive on the back end. Yeah. Some capacity or another. So, so how do we get from all this life experience to my virtual dad and tell me my virtual dad, tell people what it is. Yeah. My virtual dad. So I've, I've started, I've still got a day job. I'm like, I'm like you, Yavita. I'm still, I'm still doing my day job. I'm in technology sales, but this is a passion project for me. And, and it all started, you know, 
saying, hey, I want to be a different husband, father, provider than, than I experienced. And that's been going on over the years. And then, you know, so I started teaching them things and, you know, just as they're growing up and mostly setting an example, I didn't really like sit down and, you know, pour wisdom into their head through my oratory. <laughs> you, mm, know, you weren't like the, you weren't like the Oracle Adelphi or anything like that. No. So, uh, but then, uh, you know, a lot of this turn in the past five or six years, I said, you know, you know, what if something happens to me? I'd like, like to write some of the things down and, you know, just kind of have them know some of the the things that they might not, you know, lessons they were probably too young for. But, you know, if something happened to me, I'd like to write them down. So probably five or six years ago, I started writing just kind of letters to them. And then it kind of transformed into a book. I've got a book 90% done. I may never finish it because now I've pivoted over to, uh, to teaching some lessons. And it all started with, I've been in men's groups for, and book clubs for 20, 25 years where guys just get together kind of, you know, I believe in the iron sharpens iron. Let's get out there with other men and do life and figure things out. That's where I think the magic happens. Mm -hmm. But in like these men's groups, you know, young guys would come along and they'd say, man, you know, I'm, I'm just married and I'm worried about this. Or they'd say, I'm trying to get a job and I don't know how to interview. Right. Mm -hmm. You know? So I just meet them in coffee shops and we'd talk about whatever, whatever their, their most pressing thing was. I've just always had a heart coming from where I came from. That's what drove me. Yeah. I said, Hey, I want to pour into this person. Cause they, they most of mostly had a childhood like mine where they, um, and I got the word dad deprivation from this book called the boy crisis by, uh, by Warren Farrell and John Gray. Um, these guys were dad deprived. So I had a heart for him. So I'd, I'd, I'd take them aside. And then my nephew called once and, uh, he said, Hey, Uncle Jay. And we weren't really close, um, but we started meeting every month. He's like, you know, I'm struggling with some stuff. And we just mm -hmm. meet at, you know, whatever coffee shop was nearby. And and I'd start uh, sharing stuff with him, you know, whether it's about his marriage or dealing with his past or finances or friends taking care of himself. You know, he's having kids. And we just, and he's like, man, hey, can I, uh, I want to invite my friend Ryan. He needs to hear this too. And hey, you mm -hmm. know, <laughs> can we get another? Next thing you know, you've uh, got a group. Of, couple other guys want to do it. And then, so that's what we were doing. Just, just talking. And then the pandemic hit. And so mm. that was a pivot point. I was kind of writing the book and, and, and I had these chapters about just key topical things. Like, you know, I think 80% of life is really common. You know, there's nothing new under the sun, right? Mm -hmm. We, <laughs> it, it, what I'm facing is not different than anybody else is facing. So I was like, Hey, there's some standard things here, you know, and, like finance is an example, stay out of debt. You know, how do you do that? You know, I point a lot of people to Dave Ramsey and because his, his, his teaching of how to pe get people out of debt. I love it. He does both yeah. the mechanics and the emotion of it. He's, he, mm -hmm. he's, um, so I think we can teach kind of 80% of the things, uh, about just the, the framework of life, the 20%, everybody's got to figure out for themselves, right? Like, how am I yeah. going to apply it? And we're all starting from different spots. Like, right, you got the silver spoon versus somebody who was in, in deep poverty. You got to figure that out on your own, how you're going to deal with it. But so during the pandemic, I said, hey, you know, there's a, there's a group of guys. I said, let's get together. And we started doing. And I decided it, since I built this tapestry of, of input from books and mentors and, and other things, I called it I built a virtual dad just to kind of help cover some of the gaps in my life. And so um Again, like you, you're doing this out of the goodness of your heart. And because it's a passion, I'm doing it. I'm building it. I've got, uh, 
you know, classes and modules. I have a 90-day boot camp uh, that is 12 modules of just, hey, you know, if you didn't have a dad speaking in your life, here's some things that'd be great to know when you're 20 yeah. <laughs> rather than when you're 50 and 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 things are on fire. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And it's that, um, it's that um, avoiding the anger of not having anybody tell you. Exactly. And I know I could have been that punk ass kid. If my dad had been the best dad ever and mm-hmm. poured into my life, I could have walked away and said, you know what? I got it all figured out. I don't need you. I, I wouldn't be the first teenager to do that. Yep. But if you have a relationship, you know, like your dad said to you when he was 18, he, I mean, that's, that actually makes the hair on the back of my neck stand up. What a tender moment that was between both of you. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. That's a beautiful moment. Uh, yeah, there's, and it's interesting. I, I think about that kind of stuff a, a lot. My father-in-law actually said, uh, his dad got really sm- So he said, father-in-law said between him turning 18 and like 21, his dad got really smart for some reason. Like he was just really hitting the books. <laughs> and uh, I think, I think Mark Twain said that he goes, yeah, when I was like uh, 16, I hated my dad. I didn't, he didn't know anything. I didn't want to be seen around him. Uh, when I turned 21, he'd gotten really smart. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's really funny. But then I also think about like perception we have. I think I've mentioned this on a mm-hmm. podcast before. Maybe. I don't know. My dad and I used to arm wrestle all the time. And uh, it was just like my lifelong dream to beat his ass at the arm wrestling. I just wanted to just knock him down in arm wrestling just once. And I remember this like it was yesterday. It was uh, Christmas break, freshman year. I almost beat him. I mean, it was... We were both given that every single thing we had. And at the end of it, he said, you're getting close. And up to that point, every time I came home or a lot of times I saw him, I was like, let's do it. Let's arm wrestle. That was the very last time I ever asked. I didn't, I didn't want to beat him. Just didn't. Wow. I didn't want to do it. And to have, this you day, armor, have you arm wrestled since? Nope. Wow. Because I know for a fact, I, I mean, it's not even close at this point, but yeah. I don't want to beat him. Again, that's beautiful. I think that's beautiful. I mean, I, like I said, I'm not angry at my dad. I didn't cry at his funeral. Mm. I, I just didn't have a relationship. Yeah. Um, I was probably more, I was angry and sad when he died. But, uh, you know, the stories you're telling just, they just warm my heart. And that's, uh, that's just a wonderful model to, uh, to, to, to try to follow after. Yeah. I wonder what that's, I mean, I'm just, I'm just now kind of analyzing that story really even. Because intellectually, I know I would like he would have zero shot <laughs> at beating me today. <laughs> he would have had zero shot at beating me at like twenty one. I just gotten significantly stronger. But yeah, I wonder what the psychology is behind that. Besides, I mean, I think partially is just like you know your father is, is is like this hero figure in you, and part of me was just like, there's no need to like let's keep that going. I I just boil it down to two words: respect and love. I, that's what I just, you, you respect him and you, and you love him. Yeah. And you, you didn't need, you didn't need that, that proof point. You knew it. It was, it went unsaid. That's, that's awesome. Well, I think part of it is also, and this is something I'd like to instill in my kids. Peer pressure never worked on me. I was ruthlessly brutal when it came to peer pressure. Like I would just call you out on your dumb crap. Even at 16, I'd be like, that is the dumbest shit I've ever heard of in my entire life. Why on earth would I do that? I, th- I think the reason it worked is my dad let me borrow his confidence. Cause when you're 15, 16, 17, 18, and I'm not saying that I was perfect cause far from it. But in this specific regard, it was like a superpower. 
at that age, the reason you succumb to peer pressure is because you're insecure. You're trying to be part of the group. But my dad let me borrow his confidence in that sense. Like whenever somebody tried to peer pressure me, I'd be like, I'm on son. Who the hell are you? Like, why should I listen to you? Like I expected a good explanation of why I should, I, why I should take you seriously. That's, that's a great lesson. I mean, I, I, I think most folks just insidiously, you know, you're critical thinking and you're calling people out. Most, most people, and I would put myself in this camp would insidiously say, Hey, here's, Everybody else is going down this path. And fortunately, I didn't do that. I had a couple of friends who, when I was, I was in junior high, they're like, hey, let's go to Target. And we, we figured out how to uh, steal uh, cassette tapes, you know, music. They're like, come on, let's go do it. And I'm like, oh, well, uh, the reason I did, my mom taught me that lesson. When I was three years old, I stole a box of cereal out of a, 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 a grocery store. Wow. Out of Kroger. Impressive. Yeah. My, it was my sister's week to uh, pick the cereal. I didn't like her choice. And it kind of goes back to your seven-year-old, uh, you know, in Germany story kind of thing. Yeah. So they turn, they go, they they go around the corner and they go down the next aisle. I just stood there, and I grab a box of cereal, I run out, I go out in the parking lot, get in my own car, I hide it like you know somewhere, which is three-year-olds just totally don't know how to hide stuff. Yeah. And I go back in probably five minutes later, and I find my mom and my sister, and they weren't even looking for me. Yeah. Right. So I steal a box of cereal. I walk out, I walk back in, we get home. I, I share, I share my, I tell my sister, I say, look what I did. And she goes, mom, you know, oh, she totally rats me out. Yeah. And then my mom just gets in the car. She doesn't say anything. She's got that disappointed. And oh. I love that my mom taught me this. It's that she wasn't mad. She was disappointed. Mm, and that hurts That's the worst. 80 times worse. Yeah. And I, she takes me back to the store and I have to go hand the box of cereal back to the manager and say, I'm sorry. <laughs> So I learned not to steal at age three. Um, but a lot of people insidiously go through and they just kind of accept some of the norms. And that, that was me. I was on, you know, I could have easily done that. Just, hey, other people are doing this and I, I, don't, I don't have a model. So I'm just going to go do it too and walk down a dark road, right? Mm. Yeah. yeah. And as yeah. a father, I mean, I love you, how you borrowed your, that's, that's a wonderful statement. I'm going to chew on that all day. Um, how you borrowed your father's confidence and just kind of took that you know, as like a cape around your neck uh, for protection. And I've tried to figure out for a long time how he did that. Um, Cause I don't think he knows, honestly. Um, I think part of it was nothing was ever really taboo in the household. Mm -hmm. Like I never, I didn't drink in high school simply due to the fact because it wasn't rebellious to drink for me. Like my dad was like, yeah. look, if you're going to, if you're going to drink, first of all, if you want to drink, like I'll go, I'll go grab you a beer right now. Like my dad never drank a lot, but we always had alcohol in the house. If that makes sense. Yeah. Um, like yep. he'd buy a case of beer and it'll last him like six months, but he was always like, if you want to drink, I'll go grab a beer or whatever. Like I'd like to see you do it. So we know if, if, uh, if something, if you have an allergic reaction or whatever it may be. And he was like, if you're going to drink, like do not drive, like call me anytime, anywhere. I'll come pick you up. You won't be in trouble. Right. I promise. So like. And that, that went across a lot of different topics. So, yeah, I don't really know. It took a long time for me, for me to be able to articulate that thought, but I vividly remembered like even thinking that and like peer pressure moments and like, no, that's stupid. Like, I don't, I don't need your acceptance that much. So I don't know. That could be an, that could be an episode all on its own. There's acceptance, there's escape, you know, for, for my boys, what, uh, what I tried to do intentionally, cause I think there's a lot of, 
I don't want to overstate it, but and be dramatic, but ritual. Mm. So when the when my boys were ten, uh, found this uh, book. A friend of mine recommended it, called The Squire and the Scroll, and it's just kind of about this this uh, squire who's on a journey with a knight, and he learns lessons along the way. So it's 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 based on a story, but then you have some lessons there, and just kind of it's kind of the five senses, you know. Mm-hmm. Hey, you know, guard your eyes, guard your guard your mouth, guard your ears, right? You know, you could get into substance, you know, drugs and alcohol, you know, guarding your body and pornography and, and, and just letting them know that, Hey, there's these dangers in the world, right? Yeah. Just be aware. Just be aware that if, and, and you're likely going to hear about them first from your friends, not like some shady guy in a hat, you know, in a, in a, in a hat pulled over his eyes and a coat in the alleyway. Right. (laughs) Don't look there. Look really close to you. Right. If you're at your buddy's house and he pulls out and that's how I, I mean, my, my neighbor across the street had a older brother that was like eight years older. That's the first time I saw like pornography. I feel, Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that's a big battle that men face. I just feel really lucky that you know, that didn't trap me. I know so many men that are, that are stuck in that, you know, and they just kind of, they just kind of walked down that path and got, got trapped. Yeah. You know, when there's all, I mean, even your dad on the alcohol trap, that was a trap. And and it kind of goes back to the whole, not being, not being manipulated by your emotions because your emotions, a lot of times are drive you what, you know, back over and over again. And also just to clarify one thing, make it very clear. I was a moron in so many different ways in high school. Uh, Me too. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, Me too. I know people from high school, <laughs> some people from the high school listen to this podcast and they're like, what? I'm like, I'm just talking about purely the peer pressure thing to complete What's idiot. country so- song. What's that country song? Uh, she got the boy. I got, uh, I got the boy. She got the man, you know, there you your high school friends knew you were the boy, but now, now you've actually matured yeah. and yeah. Uh, making different choices. Cause your frontal lobe is developed, which is a, is a really good attribute too. Oh, oh man. I can go on all kinds of, uh, tirades about your, your prefrontal cortex not being developed until you're 25 years old. You're basically a moron exactly. until you're 25 years old. Your, 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 your brain hasn't even closed up. Okay. Like <laughs> you're an idiot. Um, and as a father, that's a really good thing to know. And just to say, Hey, there's going to be some stumbles along the way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're, you're, I don't expect perfection. Yeah. You're basically just a grown idiot until you're 25. And then, and then you're just a, uh, sorry, you're a growing idiot. And then after 25, you're just a grown idiot. Um, exactly. all right, we're r- running up on time, but this, this was awesome. Um, final question. I think you know what it is going back to 18 year old, you knowing all that, you know, and knowing all that, you know, about yourself, what's What's some advice you'd give yourself? What's one piece? I mean, I, that's really where this journey started. So it's appropriate to end there. You know, I, I think, you know, what I've learned is, um, you know, I wanted to be a good husband, father, provider. I believe that other, all other men deeply want to be a good husband, father, provider, whether you came from a good environment or a bad one. And maybe especially if you came from a bad one, you want to mm. be, you want to be good at that. And I think mm-hmm. there's three reasons that uh, you typically don't. And first is you might not know what to do mm-hmm. and you're going to learn some things from others. Others, other times you're going to learn from the school of hard knocks. So one, you might not know what to do. And I became passive when I didn't know what to do, um, battled through that. Uh, the second one is, you know, men don't want to feel weak and I think it's okay to, um, have a tight group of friends and, and say, man, I just, I just don't have this figured out. So I'd say get a good group of 
get a good group of guys where you can do life together. There's nothing more important than that um, for me. And the third thing is, you know, um, yeah, uh, I would tell myself I'm worthy. I didn't feel worthy because I, I kind of internal and I didn't have these words until very recently, but I guess I'd say, you know, why did my dad think drinking beer was more important than hanging around with their son? And that mm. was kind of a, that's, that's kind of a deep wound, you know? And, um, I know he was ill and he, and he, he just couldn't get out of that. I can't even imagine. I, I confess to my boys, I, I drank and drove in, younger days and I'm thoroughly embarrassed. I, I, I confess all the stupid stuff as much stupid stuff as I can confess to my kids. I do just to show them Mm -hmm. that, Hey, you know, you're going to make mistakes, but, uh, don't make some of these critical ones. So, yeah, I would say, you know, um, you know, surround yourself with good friends, try to learn the best about, uh, some of the basic situations in life. And, uh, finally you're, you're worthy you're worthy and you're built for great things. Um, a lot of guys get that from their father and their mother, but, uh, some people don't. And, uh, everybody needs to know that they're, uh, they're worthy and powerful. Hmm. That's awesome. Worthy and powerful. How can people uh, get a hold of you? Uh, I got a website, myvirtualdad.net. Um, again, it's building out. So thanks for your patience. Uh, again, this passion project, actually it's starting. To, <laughs> there's a lot of people reaching out. Um, I don't know if it's going to take on a life of its own, spending time, getting it ready. Uh, I teach a couple of small groups on the weekends. We just go live and, and teach some of the, uh, the lessons and the modules, uh, taking some guys through it, trying to get some feedback, I'm really proud of it. Uh, it'll probably evolve over time, but, uh, myvirtualdad.net and Jay at, uh, myvirtualdad.net. Awesome. Is the email. So, well, everybody check it out. Myvirtualdad.net. Man. Yep. early in the morning on a Tuesday. Can't even talk. It's Tuesday, right? Yeah, it is. It is uh, Tuesday. <laughs> it hey, is Tuesday. Is this your uh, three-year anniversary? Is this your uh, of the podcast? Woohoo! The day we're recording Congratulations. this. It's three years since the first episode of Millennial Manhood came out. That's wild. Um, I'm proud of your accomplishment. I like I like your story, and I like your uh, stick to itiveness uh, on this. I know you had a goal, and you've achieved it, man. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. Uh, and for folks who don't know, the goal was 100 episodes. The very first episode was episode 001. It had three digits on purpose because I said, I'm not doing this unless I commit to 100 episodes. So I don't know. This will probably be like episode 112, 13, something along those lines. But uh, I appreciate that. That's pretty cool. I didn't I didn't even realize you just made me think of the fact that it was a three anniversary. So you're a man of your word. You You stuck to it. <laughs> Well, it was a public declaration, so <laughs> I didn't have much Those of a choice. Those are the best kind. Yeah, I didn't have much of a choice. Um, Jay, yeah. thanks for thanks for coming on. I appreciate it. Uh, this was awesome. Hey, uh, thank you for all you do. I'll keep listening. Uh, I think you got some great topics, and you're helping men. So I, uh, that's why I was drawn to you. I think you're uh, you're fighting a good fight and helping others out. So thanks for setting an example the best you can. I appreciate that. It means a lot. Uh, for folks listening, manhoodpod.com, about to revamp the website. Got reached out to by some designers. I'm paying for stuff on the podcast now, guys. I'm not I'm not even doing everything by myself anymore. Uh, but yeah, manhoodpod.com will get re- revamped if you want to check that out. Um, or wait to check it out. Uh, info at manhoodpod.com if you want to get a hold of me, if you want to uh, interview, have me interview somebody. If you got constructive criticism, keyword constructive, don't just complain, offer a solution. But outside of that, we'll talk to you guys soon.